an enormous percentage of the country, about 90% of the country believes that money has a corrupting influence in politics. Conservative judges, including Gorsuch, don't believe that. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Bradcast, Democracy Now!, Amicus from Slate, and The Young Turks. Since Donald Trump announced Neil Gorsuch as his nominee for the Supreme Court, media seem to have coalesced around a few themes. One is about whether any Trump appointment should be blocked as payback to Republicans. That's expressed in the New York Times headline, Democrats' quandary on Gorsuch, appease the base or honor the process. Spoiler, the paper thinks the real strain is on those in the middle. Another theme is Gorsuch's eloquence and his being hard to pigeonhole as conservative. Apparently, he didn't skip a beat when a friend came out to him as gay. There are stories around concerns about Gorsuch's record on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. They focus on his justifiably concerning ruling in the Hobby Lobby case, where the chain store won the right to deny employees contraception coverage, and in which Gorsuch described birth control falsely as destroying a fertilized human egg. But the lens corporate media use for Supreme Court nominees has some blind spots. In this case, you could read all the elite press have to offer on Gorsuch and never hear about human rights for people with disabilities. You'd have to find ACLU attorney Claudia Center's piece on their website to learn about Huang versus Kansas State University. That was a case brought by assistant professor Grace Huang, who was returning to work after a leave of absence for cancer treatment when the campus broke out in a flu epidemic leading her to request to work from home for a short period as her immune system was weakened. Judge Gorsuch sided with the school that this request was unreasonable, and he said that disability rights rules aren't meant to, quote, turn employers into safety net providers for those who cannot work, close quote. That call, which Center notes represented errors of both fact and law, went against every other circuit decision on the issue, as well as guidance from the EEOC and the Supreme Court. But a search of major media on Gorsuch and Huang turns up zero stories. Despite disabled people constituting some 19% of the U.S. population, that's nearly one in five people, according to the Census Bureau, how the highest court in the land may affect their ability to work and live just isn't interesting to corporate media. With a president that openly mocks disabled people, that kind of disinterest is even more dangerous. In this case, even if it wasn't Donald Trump, had it been, I don't you know, take Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, we would still be looking at a situation where the Republicans 
as a party, as an institution, have effectively stolen the Supreme Court um, for a generation. And this seems to me to be in and of itself different than anything we have ever seen. You write in your uh, in your piece, uh, Peter Shane, at the American Constitution Society, that Republicans have offered a breathtaking exercise in revisionist history in order to defend what they have done. Uh, how so? How, how do you see them uh, revising history with with what they've done here to justify it? Well, you know, first of all, I, I don't disagree with the word that you just said. Um, and the uh, you know the revisionism is that somehow uh, President Obama breached what had become a norm for presidents of not uh, seeking to fill vacancies on the Supreme Court uh, in the last year of their terms. This is simply n- not true. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they refer to an 80-year tradition. You know, it, it's been 80 years since a vacancy arose in the last year of a president's term. Um, that's why I said, you know, the, the one uh, moment in which I indulged my, my, my uh, sarcastic instinct um, in that uh, essay was to say, you might as well refer to, you know, a 228-year tradition of not nominating people to fill non-existent seats on the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> right. you know, there's, you know, there's no other uh, principle that they can rely on. That the, There are six instances in which the Senate... Uh, kind of refused to go forward with the normal process all in the 19th century. None of them involved actually, um, uh, well, three of them didn't involve uh, elected presidents at all. They were all people who took office because of uh, a uh, predecessor's death. And the other three cases um, all involved vacancies that arose uh, between the election, uh, you know, after an election had uh, already occurred. Okay. You know, th- this is not, you know, eight months ahead of an election. So um, there is no close precedent. And the idea, you know, and the the line that the GOP was using is, you know, this is something for the people to decide. And I, I completely agree. The people decided in the year 2012 that for the years 2013 to 2017, the president of the United States would be Barack Obama. Um, he wasn't elected to a three-year term. He was elected to a four-year term. And in nominating someone he was performing his constitutional duty, and the Senate had a constitutional obligation to give Judge Garland a hearing. And the reason they didn't, uh, I would say two things. You know, they didn't want Judge Garland to become Justice Garland was, of course, the fear that, you know, they would be losing, you know, what had been a secure 5-4 conservative majority on the court. Mm -hmm. But they also didn't want to give him a hearing because they knew if they gave him a hearing that, Judge Garland would appear to be so thoughtful, so reasonable, so accomplished and balanced a person that um, it would be politically much more difficult to vote no. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they were not con- nobody in the Senate is constitutionally obligated to vote in favor of Judge Garland. Right. It would just be hard to explain why. And um, you know, so that is the dilemma. And this is one you know breach of norms that cannot be put on you know Donald Trump's shoulders personally, but is part of the same kind of far-right agenda of a certain faction of the Republican Party that has really been dominant, uh, increasingly dominant, since the 1980s. Let me ask you uh, this, since we tend to agree on so many of these points. Let me let me point to the, the Constitution itself. Uh, does leave the process, as I understand it, of advice and consent on on this uh, matters like this, uh, largely up to the Senate itself. Republicans control Congress. 
Uh, and and they did uh, control the Senate last year when uh, Garland's nomination came up. Can't they take up that role essentially any way that they want, the advice and consent role, including, you know, advising the president, President Obama in this case, that they will not consent in any way, uh, you know, as they did with Merrick Garland. Isn't that their right? Isn't that uh, perfectly legal and legitimate? It may be different than uh, tradition and norms, but... Other than that, uh, you know, they can do whatever they want. It's totally legal, and we should just all sort of suck it up and get used to it. I think, you know, the the trick in that question is defining what it means to be legal. If you define as legal anything that can be done without fear of a um, kind of judicial rebuke, then yes. I mean, you know, Justice Garland had no court in which he could have appeared to uh, seek an injunction requiring that he be given a hearing. Mm-hmm. But um, a wise Supreme Court justice, a, a Republican, a former governor of New York, Charles Evans Hughes, uh, once wrote a, a very important line. He said, uh, behind the precise words of the Constitution are postulates that limit and control. And what he meant by that is that, you know, this is not just a, a text in which everybody gets to push their authorities to the absolute limits of what language would permit, the document has to be implemented considering, you know, the full implications of its values and, and, and overall structure. Um, could, could the Senate get away with uh, saying, you know, we're not going to give a hearing to any person nominated to be a judge uh, unless they have um, declared Jesus Christ their personal savior? Yes, they could get away with that. But that wouldn't make it constitutional. It would be a violation of the Establishment Clause. Mm -hmm. And when Congress, when the Senate said, you know, we're not going to even uh, meet with Judge Garland, we're not going to give him this process, they were not taking seriously their obligation, which is equivalent to the President's obligation, to preserve and protect the Constitution. Uh, The reason for the confirmation power going to the Senate was, in fact, to primarily to check potential corruption and cronyism mm-hmm. uh, in terms of presidential appointments, which is you know, interesting, perhaps, given our current president. <laughs> but what has happened, it's common to say that the current situation we're in started with the Bork nomination. Mm-hmm. And usually uh, it is said that that means it's the Democrats' fault for, you know, politicize, for denying a Supreme Court seat to a, a nominee who was so obviously qualified. Well, I agree that the Bork nomination changed things, but not for that reason. Prior to the Bork nomination, what would be typical is that a president would nominate some highly qualified person based largely on you know their prior loyalty to the party, maybe their general um, you know a general sense of their values and inclinations, but you know at most. For example, you know, when Richard Nixon appointed justices, mm-hmm. not that I'm nostalgic for the Nixon administration, <laughs> he was looking for justices. I am. Thought, At this point, I am, yeah, Peter. I, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I okay. hear you. All right. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, the guy did create the Environmental Protection Agency. We should give him credit for yes, that. Yes, that's right. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, he was looking for somebody who was, um, you know, who would be tougher on criminal defendants than he perceived the Warren Court had been. But what was different about the Reagan administration and the Bork nomination is that they didn't have a litmus test. They had a litmus menu. Mm-hmm. And Bork was picked not because he would be generally more conservative on some particular issue on which uh, President Reagan had run, but because 
they it was assumed that he would take a hard stance on a whole series of issues you know to which the administration was basically uh, pledging its allegiance but the, even in that process, uh, Peter, they they went through the the proper process. They held oh, hearings. Uh, you know, they they continued forward as normal, and arguably, they did their job of advising and consenting in that case. To, and, and even more tellingly, yeah. I would say, you know, the Democrats, you know, gave a hearing, gave a vote, did not filibuster. Uh, the nomination of, of Clarence Thomas to succeed Thurgood Marshall, mm-hmm. which was um, at least as a, a convulsive uh, jurisprudential shift in the mm-hmm. court's majority uh, as anything um, Judge Garland would uh, offer. Sure, but they've been, of course, punished for that uh, vote ever since, even though they allowed him, uh, they allowed uh, Clarence Thomas on the court. Uh, now, Republican, we got just a few minutes left here, uh, Peter Shane. Uh, Republicans have argued. The Democrats, and you heard I uh, mentioned Lindsey Graham, uh, they've argued that Democrats would do the same thing. They, they even cite uh, Biden and uh, Schumer as discussing the possibility of not voting for a George W. Bush nominee, uh, nominee if a seat had opened in his uh, final year in office. So is there uh, hypocrisy there? And on the other side of this issue, um, you cite in your in your piece at ACS, uh, uh, Ted Cruz and John McCain both speaking about the point that they were getting ready to block any and all uh, Hillary Clinton nominees had she won the presidency. And uh, you know we we've spoken in this on this program in the past with uh, constitutional and Supreme Court expert uh, Ian Milheiser. He said on this show a year or two ago that he wouldn't be surprised if Republicans were planning to block what would have been three or four vacancies during a Clinton presidency or whoever the Democratic nominee was. Um, So do you agree, I guess, that have Democrats in the past, in fact, suggested they would do the same thing? And uh, and what about uh, Republicans had, in fact, Hillary Clinton won? Two part question for you. Yeah, actually, there are at least two parts in there. At but least, part yes. one is, uh, I think, um, uh, you know, uh, Schumer and Biden were, were quoted, you know, were quoted out of context. You know, they said, you know, we could do this, we shouldn't. Was the second part? Mm-hmm. Um, this shouldn't happen. This shouldn't be the way that we proceed. Ah. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, th- there was no such uh, democratic impediment to any uh, Supreme Court nomination by a Republican president. Nothing equivalent to this or remotely equivalent ever. You know, somebody once said, you, you know it's a smear campaign when somebody accuses you of, of their own worst failings. Mm. And and I applaud, I give Senator Graham for at least being candid that this was a political calculation, not sort of a, a high-minded mm-hmm. uh, adherence to some non-existent tradition. Um, but in saying, you know, I felt okay about this because the Democrats would have done it. He is just projecting onto the Democrats something the Democrats have never actually moved ahead to do to a Supreme Court justice.
These days, our progressive organizations need as much support as they can get, and that means funding. So wouldn't it be great if you could support great causes just based on your choice of phone company? Well, now you can, because Credo Mobile is the only explicitly progressive cell phone company that donates a portion of their proceeds directly to organizations fighting for the issues you care about. So you get to make the world a little bit better every time you use your phone. They donate millions of dollars every year to progressive nonprofits like the ACLU, Social Security Works, and they've been Planned Parenthood's largest corporate donor for years. Not to mention, they have great service. Their coverage is dependable, running over the same cell towers as the big-name companies, and you can keep your existing number when you switch over. It's a better world for all of us, and a better way to stay connected to it. So what are you waiting for? Go to credomobile.com slash bestofleft. That's credomobile.com slash bestofleft. Or you can call them directly at 800-654-3182 to switch today and just tell them Best of the Left sent you. Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch is back on Capitol Hill today for day two of his confirmation hearing. Each senator on the Judiciary Committee will be allotted 30 minutes to question the federal judge who was tapped by President Trump to fill the seat left vacant by Antonin Scalia's death over a year ago. President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace Scalia nearly a year ago, but Republicans refused to even hold hearings, fearing that Garland would tip the ideological balance of the court to the left. Uh, during opening statements on Monday, Democratic senators repeatedly criticized Gorsuch's record and took aim at their Republican counterparts for refusing to take up the nomination of Garland last year. This is Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Now, where do you fit in? When Hobby Lobby was in the 10th Circuit, you held for a corporation having religious rights over its employees' health care. Your record on corporate versus human litigants comes in by one count at 21 to 2 for corporations. Tellingly, big special interests and their front groups are spending millions of dollars in a dark money campaign to push your confirmation. We have a predicament. In ordinary circumstances, you should enjoy the benefit of the doubt based on your qualifications. But several things have gone wrong that shift the benefit of the doubt. One, Justice Roberts sat in that very seat told us he'd just call balls and strikes and then led his five-person Republican majority on that activist five-to-four political shopping spree. Once burned, twice shy. Confirmation etiquette has been unhinged from the truth. Two, Republican senators denied any semblance of due legislative process to our last nominee, one, I would say, even more qualified than you, and that's saying something. Why go through the unprecedented political trouble to deny so qualified a judge even a hearing if you don't expect something more amenable to come down the pike? Those political expectations also color the benefit of the doubt. That's Rhode Island Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. In his opening statement, Supreme Court Justice nominee Judge Neil Gorsuch warned against judges being, quote, secret legislators. When I put on the robe, I'm also reminded that under our Constitution, it's for this body, the people's representatives, to make new laws, for the executive to ensure those laws are faithfully executed, and for neutral and independent judges to apply the law in the people's disputes. If judges were just secret legislators, declaring not what the law is, but what they would like it to be, the very idea of a government by the people 
and for the people would be at risk. And those who came before the court would live in fear, never sure exactly what the law requires of them, except for the judge's will. As Alexander Hamilton said, liberty can have nothing from nothing to fear from judges who apply the law. But liberty has everything to fear if judges try to legislate, too. That's Supreme Court Justice nominee Neil Gorsuch. To talk more about the judge, we're joined by Ian Milheiser, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress Action Fund, editor of Think Progress Justice, author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. So, Ian, we wanted to get your um, view of the first day of the hearing. Um, the judge was not questioned. Uh, the senators just made their statements. Um, but talk about what most—what uh, you thought was most important that came out of yesterday's hearing. Sure. So, I was really struck by the difference between Judge Gorsuch's rhetoric at the hearing and what I see in his record as a judge. Um, Judge Gorsuch comes out of, of a tradition that's become particularly prominent on the right since Barack Obama was sworn in um, that calls for judges to be more active, more aggressive in pushing a conservative agenda, uh, more hostile to agency regulation, more hostile to laws like the Affordable Care Act. And everything I see in Judge Gorsuch's record suggests that he very much believes in that agenda. Whether you look at his Hobby Lobby decision, you look at his efforts to uh, dismantle many of the powers that agencies like the EPA has, th this looks like he's going to be a very aggressive judge. So I was surprised to hear him talk about judicial modesty and not behaving like a super legislator. Um, because when I look at his record, I mean, the, the modesty does not seem to be what, what he is interested in. Well, let's go back to part of Neil Gorsuch's opening statement before the Senate Judiciary Committee. In my decade on the bench, I've tried to treat all who come before me fairly and with respect and afford equal right to poor and to rich. I've decided cases for Native Americans seeking to protect tribal lands, for class actions like one that ensured compensation for victims of a large nuclear waste pollution problem, produced by corporations in Colorado. I've ruled for disabled students, for prisoners, for the accused, for workers alleging civil rights violations, and for undocumented immigrants. Sometimes, too, I've ruled against such persons. My decisions have never reflected a judgment about the people before me, only a judgment about the law and the facts at issue in each particular case. A good judge can promise no more than that, and a good judge should guarantee no less. For a judge who likes every outcome he reaches is probably a pretty bad judge, stretching for policy results he prefers rather than those the law compels. Ian Milheiser, what about this, uh, this particular, these particular words of, uh, uh, of Neil Gorsuch? And also, could you talk about he, later on in the hearing, he also talked about his, uh, uh, his admiration for Justice Robert Jackson and how he compares to, uh, to that, uh, that former justice? Sure. So, I mean, I think it is important to notice that, and Gorsuch is right about this, that judges tend to operate in broad, paint with broad ideological brushes or broad constitutional brushes and not, you know, a bad judge is someone who looks at each individual case and figures out the result they want in that individual case. Gorsuch doesn't seem like someone who does that. What he does do, though, 
is he believes in a comprehensive, very conservative ideology, which will sometimes reach results that are good, but that very often reaches results that have very sweeping implications that I at least think are pretty bad. Um, you know, to give an example of that, there was a case involving an immigrant, um, someone who was sent, um, sent back to Mexico, wanted to reenter the United States, and was very, very poorly treated by the federal government. And, and, and Gorsuch ruled in favor of this very mistreated immigrant. But in the process of doing so, he laid out a broad rule, which if it were taken up by the Supreme Court, would make it very difficult for the EPA to operate, would make it very difficult for the Department of Labor to um, enact very um, a, a number of regulations protecting workers, could potentially have implications for food safety and other areas of the law. So he painted with a broad brush, and the breadth of his opinion was broad enough to help this, this one immigrant. Um, but it wasn't, um, but it's still a very con comprehensively conservative decision that has much bigger implications that I think should be very frightening. Um, you asked about Justice Robert Jackson. You, he praised Jackson in his hearing. Uh, Jackson is someone who's associated very much with judicial restraint. And it was another example of Gorsuch trying to paint himself as the picture of judicial modesty. But again, I look at his record as a judge and I just don't see the modesty that he describes in his testimony there. Uh, let's go to uh, Utah's Republican Senator Mike Lee. You have the resume of a Supreme Court justice, but I think what's most impressive and for our purposes, what's most important about your career and about the approach you take to the law is your fierce independence from partisan influence and from you, any personal biases that you might otherwise uh, be inclined to harbor. During Monday's hearing, several Democratic senators, including Dick Durbin of Illinois, talked about how Republicans blocked Obama's nomination of Judge Merrick Garland. The journey began with the untimely death of Justice Scalia in February of 2016. President Obama met his constitutionally required obligation by nominating Judge Merrick Garland to fill that vacancy in March of 2016. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell announced that for the first time in the history of the United States Senate, he would refuse Judge Garland a hearing and a vote. He went further and said he would refuse to even meet with the judge. It was clear that Senator McConnell was making a political decision, hoping a Republican president would be elected. He was willing to ignore the tradition and precedent of the Senate so that you could sit at this witness table today. So that was Senator Dick Durbin. Um, Ian Milheiser, as we wrap up uh, in our next segment, we're going to be talking about the Federalist Society with New York Times reporter Eric Lipton and its power in choosing judges and shaping the Trump judiciary. Um, but uh, what about what's going to happen right now? Um, it took over 320 days. Uh, Garland never had a hearing. They are talking about fast-tracking this to when would be a vote. I mean, we're probably looking at a vote sometime in April. They want to get this done as quick as possible so that something like, say, for example, an FBI investigation into the president of the United States doesn't dis doesn't derail this confirmation. You know, Republicans know what's at stake here. There, there's a big gerrymandering case that's going to be heard by the Supreme Court next term. There's a bunch of cases involving the future of voter suppression laws in places like North Carolina. Um, so these Travel guys— ban. 
Travel ban, right. I mean, these guys have done a great deal to manipulate the way that our elections are held and make it easier for Republicans and harder for Democrats. And if the Supreme Court takes that away from them, and if Merrick Garland had been confirmed, it's likely that the Supreme Court would say no more of that. You don't get to manipulate elections anymore. Republicans would be in a very difficult position. So they want this guy confirmed fast. Because they want their conservative majority that's going to protect these laws that allow them to manipulate how our elections are held. You're disturbed, but you wear it so well. You're absurd and a death trap as well. Can't relax till we're free from this hell, which we Well, he seemed almost offended by certain questions, you know, and claimed he didn't he doesn't care who's rich or poor, that there's no such thing as a Republican justice or a Democratic justice. That seems specious, um, because when you look then at the actual record, so maybe let's look at some actual examples. Uh One thing that folks are really concerned about is that Gorsuch seems to believe corporations are people. That's 100% correct. Uh, He was on the original Hobby Lobby case. This is the case regarding whether for-profit corporations have a right um, under health care law to deny critical reproductive health care and access to contraceptives to their women employees. It was a remarkable decision that really was countered to 200 years of legal tradition and analysis. I think one of the senators pointed out to Neil Gorsuch that he calls himself an originalist, but nowhere in the Federalist Papers does it say that the founders intended for-profit corporations to enjoy the same rights as the American people. And what's particularly troubling in that is not just that he held that that for-profit corporations are people with legal rights, but that those rights trump the rights of, of everyday Americans. Nowhere in his decision in Hobby Lobby does he talk about even the need to balance the interests of the women who rely on employer-sponsored health care. It was a callous decision. It was not legally right. And it just demonstrates how results-oriented he is. Uh, let me give you one more example in that context. And that's the case of Planned Parenthood versus Utah. This was a case where the Republican governor of Utah unilaterally decided after the false videos came out regarding Planned Parenthood to unilaterally defund Planned Parenthood in Utah, hurting uh, thousands of women who rely on the organization for critical access to health care. Planned Parenthood sued and uh, judges on the 10th Circuit uh, Court of Appeals des- uh, rightly decided that they were entitled to a preliminary injunction blocking the governor's unilateral action. And Neil Gorsuch, on his own, without the state of Utah even appealing, sought the en banc review, full court review of that 10th Circuit panel decision. He lost. The majority of judges on the 10th Circuit rightly recognized that the preliminary injunction was proper. Another judge on the panel, characterizing Judge Gorsuch's opinion in that case, pointed out, and these are the judge's words, that he misrepresented 
the facts and the law in that case numerous times in his opinion. Again, just a results-oriented approach designed to shield the unilateral actions of a Republican governor to take away critical health care for women. Well, I did want to ask you about the question of people with disabilities, because that's one where we've seen something very interesting in this week. Uh, Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch wrote, of course, the opinion for this 2008 decision um, that rejected the claim that a Colorado school district wasn't doing enough to educate an autistic student. Now, the Supreme Court, even during his hearings, has come out and said that that is not correct and, in fact, has kind of, um, you know, smacked at the Tenth Circuit uh, for that decision. Can you tell us what Gorsuch's role was there and what it's what it means? Well, they had a really awful set of facts. The case was involving a child by the name of Luke P. And if you have a chance, his father testified earlier today before the Senate Judiciary Committee and could not have been more powerful in demonstrating the steps that Neil Gorsuch took to undermine the educational opportunities for this child. Luke P. had autism. It was undisputed that he was not getting the education he needed and was entitled under the IDEA to a free and appropriate, meaningful education. The facts demonstrated that he was only meeting 25% of his goals, his educational goals in the school. And he rightly exercised his rights under an act of Congress, the IDEA, to demand that the school district do more to properly educate his child. And Neil Gorsuch, uh, in his opinion, rejected Luke P's uh, claim. And in doing so, the standard he created, which appears nowhere in law, nowhere in the statute, nowhere in prior Supreme Court precedent, nowhere in prior Tenth Circuit precedent, is that Luke P was only entitled to merely de minimis education. Taking it out of the disability context, I think any parent would be outraged if they are told that a school is only teaching their child 25% of his goals and that that child is only entitled to merely more than a de minimis education. That is not the equal opportunity that the Congress set forth in the IDEA. It demonstrated Neil Gorsuch's callousness to the situation Luke P. found himself in. It demonstrated Neil Gorsuch's contempt for the efforts of Congress to ensure equal opportunity for all persons, including those with disability. And as you alluded to, in another case involving the Tenth Circuit, which had adopted Neil Gorsuch's standard, the Supreme Court just yesterday, unanimously, every single judge on the Supreme Court, uh, Democratic appointed and Republican appointed alike, eviscerated Neil Gorsuch's standard and made clear that that was not the intent of Congress, and a merely de minimis education is the same as no education at all. I've never seen anything like it where the Supreme Court unanimously demonstrates on the same day the nominee is testifying how unqualified this nominee is to be on the Supreme Court.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So, Senator Whitehouse, am I right to say that you're trying to draw a straight line? I know you've thought about Citizens United and corruption and big money and dark money as much as anybody. And you're trying to draw a line between those conversations about disparate influence by big money and uh, corruption, tying that to the kind of 5-4 Citizens United block, tying that to the conversation both about the McConnell obstruction and to Gorsuch. Is there also a filament of this that is tying that whole big money corruption, drain the swamp conversation to Donald Trump himself? I think um, it's a little hard to establish that. To me, the thing that is the huge flash... To me, the thing that is the huge flashing billboard right front and center is the past record of the court mm-hmm. with a five to four Republican majority. Election law, they were six to zero favoring Republican interests against Democratic interests at the polls. In cases where it was obvious that they were favoring Republican interests at the polls when they made the decision. In cases that pit corporations, particularly really big corporations, against human beings, it is 17 to 0 in favor of corporations in those 5 to 4 decisions, whether you're a consumer, whether you're an employee who's been discriminated against, whether you're a union member, across the board, they have come down unanimously in these 5 to 4 decisions every single time. 6 to 0 in elections, 17 to 0 in conflicts between corporations and humans on the side of the Republicans and the big corporations. And when you look at the way big corporations fund the Republican Party, that makes a kind of sordid triangle of influence. And I think it's probably fair to say we don't know too, too much from Gorsuch, at least from his record that I've seen, about where to locate him on the Citizens United question. Oh, I think uh, it's pretty clear. He uh, wrote an opinion in the the Hickenlooper case in the Tenth Circuit, Mm -hmm. where I'm going to get lawyerese now, but he basically said that strict scrutiny was likely required for any law that uh, tried to impede the fundamental right to give money to politicians. So strict scrutiny 
is, uh, as some people have said, strict in theory, fatal in fact. And it signals, I think, pretty strongly that when it comes down to uh, the interests of money trying to apply influence to elections and the defense of honest elections against that influence, he's going to come down on the side of the influencers. And I guess the one thing we can stipulate, you and I, is that one of the most universally hated decisions to come out of the Supreme Court was Citizens United, right? I mean, this crossed ideology and political partisan lines. I mean, I think... Yeah, I think like 85% of Americans think it's a horrible decision, and it's spattered onto the reputation of the court in such a way that uh, by nine to one, Americans think that a corporation is likely to get a fairer shake from the Supreme Court over a human being rather than vice versa. That's not a good place for the Supreme Court to be. So, Senator, uh, let's let's go back to 1971 and uh, the so-called Powell memo. And this is written before Lewis Powell is on the Supreme Court. He's worked at Philip Morris. He's a successful corporate lawyer. And he more or less uh, writes what becomes the blueprint for corporate takeover of the judicial system. And it becomes kind of the scaffolding under which the American conservative legal movement is born and spawns think tanks and spawns the Heritage Foundation and spawns American Legislative Exchange Council. Alec, this is all a plan. And Lewis Powell dreamed it up one night. Is is it your contention that the 5-4 Roberts Court that you're describing that is at the heart of Citizens United, it's at the heart of McCutcheon, the heart of Hobby Lobby, is just the full flowering of that Powell memo. And that whatever this court is doing right now, it looks a lot less like doing justice and a lot more doing favors for big business. Absolutely. I think um, that it has been the stated intention of the Republican Party for decades to accomplish that. And it goes back to the comment in the Powell memo that an activist court could be the strongest tool for the uh, corporate community. And it's not just me who's noticing this. All of the three major court watchers have observed the same thing. Jeffrey Tubin saying that uh, Chief Justice Roberts has served the interests and reflected the values of the contemporary uh, Republican Party. Norm Ornstein talking about the new reality of today's Supreme Court, that it's polarized along partisan lines in a fashion we have never seen. And uh, Linda Greenhouse, after much, you know, concern and wait, you know, she she agonized about this and finally said, I'm finding it impossible to avoid the conclusion that the Republican appointed majority is committed to harnessing the Supreme Court to an ideological agenda. So so let me ask you this question, which which plagues me as I prepare to think about these hearings. Um, what has been not a useful framing, in my view, is this language of Judge X is out of the mainstream. There is this mainstream. And, you know, whether it's Elena Kagan on the one side or whether it's John Roberts on the other, there seems to be a presumption there that we all agree what the judicial mainstream is. Yeah. And we everybody we, brings their own mainstream to the debate. There ain't no mainstream. If there ever was, you know, it's gone. And so I'm trying to think about how this language of 
what is the infirmity that, in your view, Judge Gorsuch, who, you know, lots of people are going to get up and say he was the best boss ever. I clerked for him. He's a good man. You know, he loves his kids. How do you respond to this discourse of what is the mainstream? There are no goalposts here. What are we really talking about? I think we're engaged right now in this country in an epic battle between special interests, which have, to an unprecedented degree since before Teddy Roosevelt, captured the institutions of government and frustrated the American public, which to a significant degree is taking out their frustration on the host, the government, rather than the virus, the corporate influence, and that this has actually infected the Supreme Court to the point where you get these five to four decisions that make what would have seemed other courts to be extraordinary calls in favor of the big special interests. And the question which side of that fight he's going to be on is terribly important, not only to individuals who are usually the losers when the special interests prevail, but also to structuralists and to lawyers who think that the court should actually be a neutral, independent, and dispassionate body rather than something where you can go in and based on who you are, you can predict whether you're going to win or not one of these five to four decisions. That just can't be right. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Help stop the arch-conservative SCOTUS pick, Neil Gorsuch. As Senator Whitehouse pointed out at the Supreme Court confirmation hearings, dark money is spending millions to make sure Neil Gorsuch is confirmed to the Supreme Court. When Whitehouse asked Gorsuch why that might be, Gorsuch replied innocently, you'd have to ask them. Whitehouse responded with, I can't. I don't know who they are. But you and I, and Senator Whitehouse, know who they are, or at least the interests they represent. They are ideologues, the Christian right, and big businesses of all varieties who love Gorsuch's previous anti-worker, anti-woman, and Citizens United-style decisions, the most famous of those being the now-infamous Hobby Lobby case, where he was part of the ruling that gave for-profit corporations a right to religious freedom, allowing them to deny their workers specific health care services such as birth control. Summed up, Neil Gorsuch is the perfect ultra-conservative blend. He believes corporations have human rights, workers have practically none, and he defends acts of injustice under his vastly broad definition of religious liberty. If confirmed to the highest court in the land, Gorsuch puts Roe v. Wade, labor rights, gay marriage, the fight to overturn Citizens United, and the battle to stop the Trump administration from destroying immigrant families and banning Muslims at risk. We can't sit idly by, even if his confirmation is likely. Our voices must be heard, so call your senators every day to tell them Neil Gorsuch is an extreme Supreme Court pick who is dangerous for American workers, women, the LGBTQ community, and anyone the Christian right deems less than. And that's a lot of people.
The team over at IndivisibleGuide.com has detailed background information on Neil Gorsuch's horrifying decisions in previous cases and scripts for calling your senator about this issue. Just go to the Resources tab at IndivisibleGuide.com and select Scripts. The Combat Donald Trump's Arch-Conservative SCOTUS Pick page is currently at the top of the list. You can also spread the word about Gorsuch's extreme decisions on social media using the hashtag StopGorsuch. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if fighting to defend the rights we have is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about stopping Neil Gorsuch via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Whether we like it or not, the Supreme Court has never had so much power, but it also hinges on public trust and can be influenced by public opinion, so brace yourself because we're going to be screaming in the streets for a long time to come. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? That's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Neil Gorsuch up for uh, hearings today to be a Supreme Court nominee. Now, of course, the Republicans blocked Merrick Garland for a record 293 days. That is uh, more than twice as long as any previous record for how long a Supreme Court nominee has been blocked. They blocked him without any consideration as to his merits. They refused to have a hearing on it. Uh, but here we are, they're in charge, so they're having a hearing on Gorsuch. Uh, the Democrats, of course, uh, should fight back with uh, everything they've got. So far, we haven't seen it yet. And in fact, when asked, Dianne Feinstein said she's not exactly sure which, what her strategy is, and that she's hoping for, quote unquote, good questions. Well, we're all hoping for that, aren't we, uh, Senator Feinstein? Uh, first of all, you should uh, sign any and every petition uh, fighting against Gorsuch, including one put together by uh, a lot of activist groups together, including us, we must stop Trump from taking over the Supreme Court. Uh, so, uh, yes, I agree with that. Uh, and, uh, and I think that it is imperative that uh, Gorsuch not be confirmed. Now, if you're going to have these hearings, well, you should ask the proper questions. One question would be, why should you get a hearing if Merrick Garland didn't get one for 293 days? So were the Republican senators wrong and were their actions unconstitutional when they did that? Because either, no, they're wonderful and correct, and in which case go home for 293 days, and then maybe uh, we'll let you have another hearing after that. Because you just told me it's perfectly uh, correct to block any nominee. Or if you say the Republicans were wrong, well, clearly explain to me the unconstitutional actions of these Republican senators sitting here. Which one is it? Okay, so that's easy. That's number one. Number two, ask them about Citizens United. I don't know if you know this, but an enormous percentage of the country... About 90% of the country believes that money has a corrupting influence in politics. Conservative judges, including Gorsuch, don't believe that. They think the incredibly small minority. Now, when I say 90%, the country ain't 90% Democrat. Okay, Republican just won the presidency. No, that includes a gigantic percentage of Republicans. Democrats, independents, libertarians, centrists, almost everyone agrees Money has a corrupting influence on politics. Gorsuch doesn't agree. Democrats are struggling to figure out how to attack him. You might want to pick that one. 
You know the one where 90% of Americans agree with you? Oh, it's so complicated. Golly gee, how do I figure out how do I, how I attack him? So ask him if he agrees with Citizens United. Now, there's two parts of Citizens United that are relevant here. They're both so easy to attack him on and to have him put on the record with insane, absurd positions that the rest of the establishment has agreed to and the Republican Party loves and conservatives in the judicial branch love, but that the rest of the country despises. So point one, do you think corporations are human beings? Now, anybody out there, if you're watching this, you know that's the most preposterous thing you ever heard in your entire life. How the hell could a corporation be a person? But Gorsuch will say, because that is the judicial philosophy today among conservatives, yes, of course. I saw a corporation the other day, I had coffee with him, he was great. I thought about having sex with him. Because they're people, they're people. And then, oh, he got run over by a truck and And then I wanted to sue the guy who, what are you talking, of course they're not people. Of course they're not people. All actual human beings understand that. No, Cenk, you're so unsophisticated. I do do that. It's a judicial philosophy uh, from over a hundred years ago. Which, by the way, look into the history of it. The Supreme Court never actually ruled that. It was added in notes later after a decision, and it was added by a person who worked for corporations. Anyway, I don't want to get into the whole history of it, but they think they're so sophisticated because they're like, oh, I do that. I like Mitt Romney. Said corporations are people, my friend. It's because there are people inside the corporation. <laughs> no, no, the people inside the corporation are the people. The corporation is a legal fiction. It is not an actual living, breathing entity that is do any unalienable rights. Let me quote the Declaration of Independence in case you're unclear on this. This is what they wrote. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I can go on and on, but let me ask you something. Do you really think that when Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers wrote that, that they thought, well, by men, of course, we mean giant multinational corporations. And they, by their creator, we mean us because we created corporations. Now, nobody's going to say that the creator, meaning God, created corporations. You don't think that, right? That would be a horribly sacrilegious thing to think. No, they are a legal fiction created by men for a certain purpose. I'm not saying that they shouldn't exist. I know why they should exist, but they shouldn't have constitutional rights that was never intended. And of course, they're not people. Of course, they don't have unalienable rights endowed by their creator. And of course, they shouldn't have the same rights as human beings. So ask him the goddamn question. It's not that hard. And have him make a fool of himself saying to the American people, oh, yeah, I saw a corporation the other day. Look just like Sally. Just look like my friend Bob. He's a, I think he's a real person. Do you know how to do politics at all? Now, if I tell Democrats this, they say, oh, no, I do declare, Jack. You don't understand. You're such an unsophisticated Philistine. Here in Washington, we understand that the American people don't care about uh, things like big business running amok. And wait a minute. I just saw a poll that showed that the only thing less popular than politicians in the media was big business. Oh, but Jack, I do declare there are donors as well. Exactly. They're your donors as well. That's why you don't want to attack him. If you attacked him, it would be, in reality, be enormously popular. Read the goddamn polls. Or if you want, I'll read them for you because you're obviously not good at this. Okay, so the second part of Citizens United, that's even more important. Does it have the, I mean, in Citizens United, they declared that giving millions, billions of dollars to politician doesn't look like bribery at all. And the fact that they do the same thing that you gave them the money to, to do, no, that doesn't even have the appearance of corruption. 
doesn't have the appearance of corruption. Here, let me give you some stats. In the last five years, 200 of the most politically active U.S. companies, that's just 200. Not all the companies, not all the unions, not everybody who donates, just the 200 most politically active U.S. companies. Spend $5 billion influencing the government. Now, well, boy, that's a lot of money, right? $5 billion. You think they're knuckleheads? You think they're wasting that money? No. Those companies received in return $4.4 trillion in taxpayer support. For God's sake, just put up this graphic, okay, and ask Gorsuch, do you think that that might have the appearance of corruption? And let the man say, no, I don't see the corruption. They gave $5 billion, they got $4 trillion. I don't see the corruption. Well, where's the corruption? They bought all you guys, and then they got exactly what they wanted, and more. They got a great return on investment. I don't see the corruption. Let him say it. Either you see the corruption, you see the appearance of corruption, and by the way, the actual reality of corruption, and hence, you will vote against Citizens United, or you will make preposterous claims that corporations are human beings, and that when they give billions of dollars to politicians and get trillions in return, there's no corruption at all. I can't even see it. For God's sake, fight! Fight! That's what we want you to do. It's not that complicated. But here's my prediction. They will graze this topic because they don't want to get yelled at. They'll, they'll graze it. Okay? Do you think they're going to go full bore after this? No. Because they don't want to First of all, most of the guys on the Judiciary Committee take millions upon millions of dollars from donors, and they don't want to highlight it. Who's corrupt? It's not just the Republicans, it's a lot of Democrats too. And some of the somewhat decent people on the Judiciary Committee on the Democratic side will not want to embarrass their colleagues. If I point out that Dianne Feinstein takes millions upon millions upon millions of dollars and largely does what her donors tell her to do, well, that would be deeply embarrassing. I do declare, Jack. You ever understand how sophisticated this argument is about how I want to protect my corrupt friends? I don't find that sophisticated. I find it cowardly and craven. Are you going to fight this guy who is more conservative than Antonin Scalia? Or are you just going to graze these topics and just let him walk on in? After they spit in your face and wouldn't even let Garland have a hearing. My guess is you're going to let him spit in your face and let the guy walk in. Hey, Democratic establishment, I'm not the one sitting up there. You're the one sitting up there. Show me what you got. So don't come crying later and say, oh, this is the, this should be the establishment Democrat slogan. There was nothing we could do. But Jake, you don't understand. We're so sophisticated. We play three-dimensional chess out here, and we go, oh, there was nothing we could do. Fight! That's what you can do. And this is how you fight on an issue where 90% of Americans agree with you. Not that complicated. We just heard clips today starting with Counterspin highlighting some of the important stories about Gorsuch the media is missing. The broadcast discussed how I'm not out of order, you're actually out of order, and in fact, the whole freaking system is out of order. Democracy Now! looked behind some of Gorsuch's record and found the conservative agenda he's wedded to. 
Counterspin talked about a couple of Gorsuch's worst rulings. Amicus discussed the corporate takeover of the entire judicial system. Our activism for today is in support of the indivisible team's efforts to call the Senate and oppose Gorsuch. And finally, we just heard the Young Turks' take on how the Democrats should fight this nomination. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly. It's been a little while since I've called in to leave a voicemail. So I wanted to say I like what you've done with the last episode or two. As you said, being able to zoom out to the super macro level and not get bogged down in some of the day-to-day minutiae and outrages of the news. There are certainly a number of outlets where that's possible, some of which you incorporate into your show. Democracy Now! and The Young Turks and so on, who do the daily news. And you're in a different position where you get to synthesize a lot of those things over weeks or months, and I think that's valuable as well to keep perspective. You know, in the last 50 or so days, I think it's been so easy to just get caught up in this wave of punches that comes in that you're, you know, up against the ropes and don't have time to recover, so... You know, I like to think of some of these macro episodes as the time between rounds where we get to sit in our corner, take a drink of water, and mentally psych ourselves up to get back in the ring. In that vein, I read an interesting article today uh, on the website Current Affairs titled The Regrettable Decline of Space Utopias, which I think is another avenue for allowing ourselves to gain perspective and and look at the world in a different way. It was an article about the idea that so much of science fiction right now seems to be much more to the right or right libertarian, you know, the idea of the the space colonizer or the sort of rugged every man for himself survivalist and I use the man term or the word man advisedly. It's either that sort of space fiction, or it's the dystopian novels that we've been seeing for a long time. Um, just to to paraphrase an article, a paragraph from the article that, you know, Game of Thrones is the dark side of The Lord of the Rings, and Black Mirror is the dystopian Twilight Zone, and so on and so forth, that there's a lack of hope in a lot of what might be more left fiction these days. And the need to get back to that greater imagination. So in that vein, I'm going to start seeking out some some better left science fiction, not as an escape, but as a way to imagine a better world and, you know, what might be the paths that bring us there. Um, You know, if anybody wants some starting points, if they're not familiar with science fiction, um, some of the ones off the top of my head, Ian Banks' culture novels, Um, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy and Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis. They may not all be utopian as such, but they definitely offer a more progressive um, vision of the future where, you know, it's about humanity getting over their differences and, and pooling their resources to make the world better for everybody instead of just whoever is the quickest gun in the space western. Just my two cents, and uh, as always, stay awesome and keep up the good work.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Just a couple of thoughts to add on to what we just heard from Erin. I really appreciate her suggestions because I did not have that idea at all, myself, and I wish I had, because I actually had the opposite reaction. I thought, okay, great, so we're sliding quickly into dystopia, I better get ready and watch or read a bunch of dystopian movies and, you know, sci-fi stories and things like that. It's like, you know, I, I read It Can't Happen Here back during the campaign season. I came on the show and talked about it, and I said, the, you know, the biggest takeaway is that it's not the fascist dictator himself that you really have to worry about. It's the creepy people he surrounds himself with. Hello, Steve Bannon. So all of that was coming to fruition at the time. And I was like, oh man, like I should probably reread that. And, you know, we started making a list of things. And next thing you know, we were about to start watching Logan's Run or something. And and now Aaron's suggestion makes so much more sense. And, and I like just because she framed it differently. Like it's not about escapism. It's about having a positive vision. And I, I am by no means the only person having this kind of conversation, but it is interesting. The media landscape we find ourselves in, in terms of, you know, fictional shows and, and, you know, everything else. We're living in an age of anti-heroes. Maybe I'm missing it. I'm, I'm not like the best uh, pop culture person in the world, but I don't know what our modern day Star Trek is to give us that positive vision of the future. Or, you know, the, for politics, instead of the West Wing, we have a house of cards, you know? And, and so it seems like it may have started earlier than this, but even going back to Breaking Bad, like we started really loving these terrible anti-heroes. And then, of course, Aaron mentioned things like Game of Thrones and Black Mirror. And yeah, man, there's a lot of really dark dystopian stuff going on right now. And if there is any time that we need a positive vision for the future, this is it. So hopefully all those liberals running Hollywood will get the message and start sending some, uh, you know, some, some positive visions our way soon. Speaking of positive visions for the future, I just wanted to ask you guys a question, honestly. As I'm recording, uh, the, the news is breaking that they're not able to get the votes in the House to repeal Obamacare, pass Trump care, that whole thing. Like maybe something new will happen tomorrow or, or it'll, it'll all be upended. But as of this moment, it's looking like they're not going to do anything about it. And people are even saying, no, it's dead. Forget it. We, we didn't do it. Let's move on to the next thing, which is very bizarre. Like, it's clearly a bizarre situation. But that leaves progressives in an interesting position because any honest person should recognize that Obamacare has huge problems that are terrible and need to be fixed. And so the obvious progressive answer is that we need single payer and we need it 20 years ago, but we'll take it now if, you know, at, at the very least. And it'll fix those problems that, that people are, uh, you know, complaining about, rightfully so. But there's another, you know, sort of the realpolitik 
vision of this is, okay, but Republicans aren't going to do that, and they're in control right now, and people are suffering, so should we should we mobilize in any way to try to fix Obamacare? And I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are. And I know it may skew the types of answers I get from you guys, but I'll tell you what I think, And I, but I still want your honest opinion. My thought was, I, I don't want to spend time and energy advocating to shore up a fundamentally flawed system. But the progressive, well-meaning response to that is, yeah, but people are suffering. People are you know suffering financially, or they actually can't afford insurance, and so they don't have it, and so they're suffering physically or mentally from all the stress of all of this. So if there's a way that we could advocate to shore it up, patch the holes, so to speak, if that's something that could get passed, would that be worth it? And that that's the real crux. I mean, that might be a pipe dream anyway. It might be impossible to even patch the holes. But my thought was, I mean, Republicans are so terrible on this issue, and the American people are so ignorant of how healthcare should be run because we'd never travel outside our own country that people just kind of have to get to the place where they're really suffering before they wake up. Because that's what's happening right now. People, like the movement for single payer is stronger now than it's ever been. Conservatives are starting to say, well, I don't know, like, maybe that is the answer because you guys tried it and now our guys tried it and they can't come up with anything and status quo doesn't work. So I guess there's that other thing that literally everyone else in the world has done I guess maybe we should look at it. Like those conversations are happening in real life right now. So I think, okay, fine. Like if it takes this level of suffering to get people to snap out of it, then I guess that's just what we have to do. But that sounds kind of cold and heartless. And I obviously would prefer for people to not suffer. That's the founding creed of my political philosophy, reduce suffering. But I, I my concern is if by some miracle we managed to patch up the ACA now and and just sort of tape that house of cards together a little bit to keep it from falling for a little while longer, my fear is that the energy towards a single-payer system would dissipate. So that's the question. In a world in which we assume that single-payer is 100% not passable at the moment— but that the ACA is not good enough on its own, and the Republicans are at a weird internal stalemate just with themselves, in some magical scenario where progressives are able to change something, but we can't get what we really want, is it better to change something and reduce suffering a little bit, risking the dissipation of the energy towards single-payer? Or do we just say, no, we just need single-payer, we're advocating for it now. We're never going to stop advocating for it unless someone comes up with something better. And if people suffer in the meantime, then it's the fault of those who won't pass a universal healthcare system. Let me know your thoughts. I, I told you my thoughts, but honestly, I am a little torn on it. So the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That really is how the program survives. 
Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past.